0: going to start this morning by talking about Americans, sorry about that. (laughs) But the reason I'm going to talk about Americans is because there was a survey done of a bunch of Americans, and it's one of the most interesting things I've ever heard in my entire life. You guys are going to absolutely love this. We're going to get to laugh at Americans a little bit, and we're going to acknowledge that, quite frankly, if we took the same survey as they did, we would probably give similar type answers. So here's what happened. There was a polling agency in the U.S. that contacted a whole bunch of Americans and said, we want to ask you a question, and the question is is do you have a positive opinion of blank. And they filled in the blank with a whole bunch of current and historical names. And so all you did was thumbs up, thumbs down. Yes, I think positively of this person or no, I don't think positively of this person. And so there were names like Mother Teresa. Do you have a positive opinion of Mother Teresa or a negative uh, opinion? There were names like Martin Luther King Jr. There were names like Steve Jobs, even Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback. They're like, do you have a positive? And it depends on if you're a Lions fan or not, right? Like thumbs up, thumbs down on all of these different names, some of them current, some of them historical. Now, this morning, what I want to do as we kick off this message, I want to share with you the top three names that came out of this survey, the three people that Americans believe are the best, they like the most, they have the most positive opinion of out of anyone. All right, here we go. Number three on the list, Jesus Christ. He is number three on the list. 90% 90% of Americans said, thumbs up, I've got a positive opinion of Jesus. Okay. All right. All right. A little weird, he's number three, but we'll roll with it. Who beat Jesus? That's my question. Who's better than Jesus? Number two, Abraham Lincoln. 91% of people said they have a positive opinion of Abraham Lincoln. I, I, I think a lot of old Abe. I really do. I like the guy quite a bit. I'm trying to figure out how he beats Jesus. It might have been the hat. Maybe if Jesus had worn a hat, he would be number two on the list. I don't know. Okay. Number three is Jesus. Number two is old Abe Lincoln. And number one, the most popular person in America, the person that everybody nearly has a positive opinion of is, drum roll, yourself. This is 100% true. You can check this out online for yourself. Sorry, I yelled too much. My bad. Um, Don't worry about it. It's okay. She's okay. Um, Look, so yeah, number one on the list is yourself. 93% of people had a positive opinion of themselves. And that's not a bad thing, right? I would have said thumbs up to me. I like me. I think I'm a pretty good guy, right? So maybe that's not a bad thing. Now, there is a lot of interesting data and interesting conclusions that we can pull out of this particular survey. One that I didn't mention to you is that Santa Claus polled at 67% who doesn't like Santa, you guys? What did he ever do to you? I feel like there are probably some dudes my age who are still mad at Santa because he didn't give them a PlayStation back on Christmas of 94. They're still carrying around scars from that. They're mad at old Saint Nick. I don't know why, but 67% of people gave him a thumbs up and the rest gave him a thumbs down. But honestly, the one that jumps out to me the absolute most in this survey data is Jesus. His numbers really stick out to me the most. And And honestly, you might be surprised to hear me say this. I'm not particularly upset that Jesus is number three on this list. That doesn't really bother me. In fact, I'm not thinking that Jesus is polling too low. I think Jesus is actually polling too high in this particular survey. I think his number should be a lot lower. Here's why. In our world, there's this sense with people, particularly non-Christians, that Jesus was just a chill, wise man, you know? Like, he just walked around, and he was like, bro, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's gonna be okay, They look at him like he said great things. He taught important things. He was probably full of like hippie love and nonviolence. That's just the picture of people, of Jesus rather that people have. He wears a tuxedo t-shirt. He likes to go to parties. People think of Jesus in those particular terms. But maybe you don't know that Jesus actually had an edge to him. There are lots of verses in the Bible where Jesus is chill, where he says things that anybody on the planet would be like, oh, that's good, yeah. I think I'd like this Jesus guy. I'd love to hang out with him sometime. It'd be fun to grab a glass of wine with him or water if that's your thing, but he'll turn it into wine. Anyway, you're like, hey, I would love to hang out with this guy, that would be a lot of fun. But in order to come to this picture of Jesus as a chill, wise man, you have to ignore all the verses in which Jesus was not particularly chill. And there are a whole bunch of them. In fact, even for me, and guys, I'm a pastor. I'm all in on Jesus here, okay? There are still things that I read he says in the Bible, and I'm like, ooh, I don't like that so much, Jesus, Wouldn't it be better if that, like maybe if you just never said that, maybe we'd be a little better off in our world. More people would be Christians if you just kind of left that stuff out. There are things that make me, almost said pucker, but I'll just say cringe a little bit whenever I read Jesus saying them. And today, although it would be very, very easy for me to say, you know, I wish these other things were not in the Bible, it would be very easy for me as a pastor, and lots of Christians do this, quite frankly. We just ignore all the stuff we don't like that Jesus said, and we focus on the stuff that we do like that makes him sound like this chill, wise man. It would be very easy for me to get up and just preach on those verses and ignore all the other ones in which Jesus says some very blunt and direct things, but we're not going to do that. In fact, today is the start of a message series that we're going to circle back to several times throughout this summer called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Things that, quite frankly, are not going to grow the church if I talk about them too much. They're not an easy entry point and on-ramp to following Jesus. This is like the deep stuff. This is the hard stuff, and Jesus was not particularly scared about saying it, and so we're going to talk about it. This series is all about embracing the red letters that we often want to avoid. So I thought to myself, as I was putting this whole message arc together, this series arc, I was like, okay, let's start in the shallow end. Let's start with something that's like, uh, okay, you know, sure, that's a little challenging, but it'll let everybody dip their toe into the water and then we'll go deeper as the series goes. And then I decided, forget that, we're going straight into the deep end. I'm giving you guys like the harshest things that Jesus said from the very beginning. I don't know if you're ready for this, but here we go. Matthew chapter number five is where we're going to start reading. And we're going to come across a whole bunch of stuff today that, quite frankly, I wish Jesus had never said. He starts out, or he doesn't start out, this is kind of the middle of a sermon that Jesus is preaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of his most famous teachings. In fact, the first part of this sermon is where most people get the idea that Jesus was simply a chill, wise man. This is kind of like, he says a lot of really interesting, good stuff in the beginning. And as he goes further into the message, it just gets weirder and weirder. So Jesus says in Matthew five thirty eight, you have heard the law, that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Anybody ever heard that? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth? That's actually an Old Testament law. It was really common several thousand years ago. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, and he's talking about this cheek, then turn to them the other cheek also. (laughs) They got it. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for one mile, you carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Uh... Did Jesus just say, if somebody punches me in my face, I'm supposed to let them punch me again? Nah, that doesn't sound right. I don't like that. Did Jesus say, if somebody takes you to court and sues you, let's say for your car, you're supposed to freely offer them your second car? That, that, that's not right. Something is not right here, right? He didn't actually mean that, did he? What's all this talk about soldiers and walking miles with them? This is bizarre. And honestly, I read these verses and I start thinking, okay, what did he really mean here? Because he can't literally mean this stuff, right? There has to be some explanation. And oh, when you dig into the Greek language, what he's really saying is, and we can explain it away or we can make Jesus teaching something that's a little more palatable, something that's a little easier to accept and to follow. But our message video this morning, our bumper video asked a question and it's really the theme of this entire series. What if Jesus meant every word? What if Jesus was totally serious when he said stuff like this in the Bible? I know that's hard to imagine. I know that you think to yourself, he can't literally mean let somebody punch you again. He can't literally mean give more than is asked. He can't literally mean go the second mile when you only have to go the first. That can't really be what it means to follow Jesus. Can it? Here's what we're gonna do this morning. Jesus gives a lot of examples here of what it looks like to follow him to the depth and the extent that he really wants you to. He gives you the example of getting smacked in the face. He gives you the example of being sued in a court. He gives you the example of soldiers. And he's gonna go on and actually give some more later in the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna focus on one of those examples because if you can understand what he's saying in this example, then the entire passage will start to make a lot more sense to you. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this example he gives of carrying a soldier's gear. Did that jump out at you when you read it? It jumps out to me every single time I read it. We're going to put this verse here on the screen for you. It's Matthew chapter number five, verse 41. And Jesus says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, you need to carry it two miles. Now, that probably sounds like a pretty weird commandment, right? That probably sounds very strange to you today. But you have to remember, Jesus spoke these words in the first century A.D., So this was a long time ago on the other side of the planet in a very different culture than what we live in today. This was the height of the Roman Empire. Anybody remember the Romans from history class? You remember Julius Caesar and the Roman Senate? All of that happened about 40 years before Jesus was born, before the first Christmas. So that's the time frame that we're talking about in history. These were actual events that really did happen. So in that time, the Roman Empire, they were the biggest, baddest dudes on the block. They had taken their army, and they had kind of gone out from Italy, and they had conquered the entire Mediterranean region. They had conquered the entire Middle Eastern region. They got all the way up into Europe. They basically owned the known world at the time. Now, in order to make it possible for them to continue to conquer and to subjugate and to rule all of these far-flung foreign lands, the Romans did something that nobody had done up to this point in history. And I wonder if maybe you guys might remember it from your high school history class. The Romans built what? Any ideas? I heard it. They built a network of roads and highways. They built a network of roads and highways. Prior to this, nobody had systematically built roads anywhere. It was kind of just like, yeah, there's always been a path and we just walk it. And the Romans were like, that's stupid. You can make a straight line between these places and it'll be a lot easier. And so that's what they did. Historians tell us that in the time of Jesus, there were 50,000 miles worth of Roman roads. And these Roman roads allowed their armies to move from area to area to continue to maintain control and to conquer new lands and cultures if they wanted to. Now, in this particular day, the Romans had a law. And the law said if there was a Roman soldier that was headed down one of these highways, he was going from one post to another, he could compel any non-Roman citizen to carry his gear for up to a mile in any direction. Historians tell us that the Romans' gear would have been about 66 pounds. So this was a heavy pack. And at any moment, a Roman soldier could walk up to anybody and say, you, I want you to carry my gear a mile in that direction. And of course, everybody's been like, nah, dude, I've got stuff to do. I gotta go grocery shop and then I gotta pick up the kids. I don't have time to walk a mile. Plus, I'm weak, man. I can't carry 66 pounds. You better find somebody else. That would not fly, okay? The law said if a Roman soldier said or required you to carry his pack, you could not say no. In fact, if you did say no, this Roman soldier was authorized to whip you, like whip you as punishment for being disobedient. So literally at any moment in Jesus' day, a Roman soldier could force you to work for him. Can you imagine, first of all, how inconvenient that would have been? How, like, you're like, I've got my own stuff to do, dude. I don't have time to go walk a mile with you in that direction, I'm busy. It would have been super inconvenient. It also would have been very humiliating for people in Jesus' day. Why? Because this was an occupying foreign army. Do you understand this guy, this soldier who's forcing you to work for him in the moment, he had conquered your homeland. He had killed your brothers and your cousins so that his country could rule over your country. It would have been humiliating for him to force you to say, I want you to help me keep control of your homeland. And yet, that's the situation that every single non-Roman citizen, including every single Jew in that day would have faced. It was required inconvenience. It was required humiliation. Now, before we move on here, I want to point out that this is not likely a situation that you are going to be facing this week here in Canada, right? Like, there's no point in the next seven days in which an infantryman is going to come up to you and say, hey, you, I need you to carry my rucksack a mile or a kilometer and a half in that direction. Sorry. They're not going to do that, okay? Okay. They're not, you're never going to encounter this particular or exact scenario that Jesus is talking about. So why am I talking about it today? Wouldn't it have been easier to just ignore this one as some sort of antiquated issue that doesn't really apply in the 21st century? No, because although you don't have a Roman soldier that interjects himself into your life, you have a boss. And he pokes his head in on Thursday and he says, guess what? I need you to work this Saturday. And you're like, but I've got plans, man. I got stuff to do. I can't be here Saturday. And he says, too bad. You're working. I'll see you Saturday. You've got a spouse. And your spouse calls you and says, honey, I'm running late. You got to go get the kids and take them to practice. And you got to do it now because if they're late again, the coach is going to kick them off the team. And you're like, but I'm busy. I'm trying to do my own stuff here. I don't have time for this. You have a neighbor who calls you up and he says, hey, uh, I need your help. I'm putting some new sod in in my yard and it would be great if you could come over and give me a hand. And you're like, brother, we're friendly, but we're not friends. I didn't know we had that kind of relationship where we would call each other up and ask for that sort of favor. Right. You don't have a Roman soldier, but you have a team lead here at Connect and they call you up and they say, listen. Oh, did I hear groans on this one? They call you up. That was from the team leads, by the way. They call you up and they say, listen, I know you have served two Sundays in a row and you're supposed to have this week off, but I'm in a pinch And I really need you to jump on the team and serve again today. You don't have a Roman soldier that's inconveniencing you, but you have a lot of people that are inconveniencing you. There are a lot of people that are interjecting themselves into your life and they're asking you to do things that you're not ready to do, you don't want to do. And so when that happens, can we just be real for a minute? How do you and I typically respond? Frustration, complaining, We start making excuses. We feel bad for ourselves. We try to do anything we possibly can to not go a mile with somebody in any direction. So yes, this is a weird situation that you're not gonna face in Canada in 2019. And yet it is a situation that you face every single day, isn't it? Now, I would expect if I were saying, okay, here's what I predict Jesus is going to say about this particular situation. I would expect that Jesus would say, Dan, be a good dude. Carry the pack for a mile without whining. Just do the right thing, even if it's inconvenient. Okay, that's what it means to be one of my followers. And I would say, okay, That's not easy, Jesus. But you know what? That's reasonable. I could see how that would be a good thing if I just chose to go a mile with somebody, so to speak. If I would do the right thing and help them out and not grumble and complain and make them miserable in the process. Yeah, I could see that. But that's not what Jesus says at all. He doesn't say go a mile and don't complain. Instead, Jesus says something that quite frankly is totally unreasonable. It is So nuts that he says, not only do I want you to go a mile and not whine about it, you big baby, I want you to go a second mile just because. I want you to do it voluntarily. I want you to choose to go this far. And when I read that, I don't know how you feel about it, but when I read that, I'm like, but Jesus, that's completely unfair. I'm a busy dude. I've got my own stuff going on. Why is it that people are just allowed to interrupt me and interject themselves into my life and require me or ask me to do all of these different things? I've got my own stuff to deal with. I also say things in my head. I would never say this out loud, but I say things like, Jesus, I know you're the creator of the universe and you invented math. Okay, I get that. But let me explain something to you. When you ask me to go two miles with somebody, you're really asking me to go four miles. You thought you'd slip that one past me, but I'm not going to let it happen. You're asking me to go four miles because I have to go two out and two back, right? I see what you're doing there. I thought, Jesus, you came to set me free. And here you are giving me more obligations. I didn't know I was signing up for that. The preacher never preached on that verse. That doesn't sound right. You can't really believe that this is what I'm supposed to do, literally? Can I tell you, Jesus calls us to be motivated by love and not by law. Most of us live our lives motivated by law. But Jesus calls us to a different standard a second mile standard in which we are motivated by love. The first mile is law. The second mile is love. When I am motivated by law, you know what I do? I count every step. I'm keeping track the whole way. Somebody requires me to do something I don't wanna do, whether it's God or a person, I don't even care. I'm keeping track. And the moment I hit one mile, I drop the pack and I say, I'm done, I did my part. I did the bare minimum that I had to do. This is what you asked, so this is what I did. When I am motivated by law, I keep score in my relationships. And so I'm constantly thinking, how much have I given to this person and how much have I actually received in return? Does it balance? Is it worth it? Is it paying off on some level? When I am motivated by law, What I want to do is the bare minimum I can possibly get away with. But when I'm motivated by love, it's a totally different atmosphere and attitude. When I'm motivated by love, one mile is not even enough. I want to go the second mile. When I am motivated by love, I'm not keeping count. I'm not keeping score. I'm giving freely and not expecting anything in return. When I'm motivated by love, when I love my job or I love the opportunities that my job provides me, you know what? It's not a big deal if I have to work a few extra hours. When I'm motivated by love, it's like I want to go the extra mile for my spouse or for my you know, significant other, whoever that might be. I want to do it. Remember when you first started dating or imagine like what it would be like to date somebody that you love and would one day marry? It's like if they say to you, hey, let's go for a walk. You're like, I don't want to go for, who walks for fun? But you know what? You love them. So you're like, okay, let's go for a walk because you love them. You want to do what you can to bless them. And it's not about you. It's about them. If you're motivated by love, You don't say, what's the bare minimum I could get away with serving at church? Like, what's the minimum number of days you guys need me and I'll see if I can squeeze it into my schedule? No, when you're motivated by love, you're like, I am so thrilled with what I see God doing in that place that sure, I'll serve multiple Sundays. I'll reprioritize things so I can make this happen. We should be motivated by love, not law, not the bare minimum. There are too many people that treat everything as an imposition and an inconvenience, and they try to do the bare minimum to get beyond it and to get past it. We've got to start living as followers of Jesus in the second mile. We've got to work and live and serve motivated by love and nothing more. It's been said the second mile is often called the miracle mile. Because it's like our sacrifice, our willingness to go above and beyond, it opens doors that might otherwise have remained shut. Because we're willing to go above and beyond what the average person does, it just seems like it has a way of breaking down barriers, and we see even miraculous things happening. So imagine the scenario that Jesus paints in which you know a soldier says, hey, you, I want you to come carry my gear for a year, uh, for a year, (laughs) I want you to carry my gear for a mile, and you get to the end of the mile, and the soldier's like, thank you, good job, give me my stuff, get back to your day, and you're like, no, 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 I'm going to go with you another mile. And he says, wait, you've already gone a mile. You don't need to go another. I'm, I'm releasing you. Go back to your day. And you say, no, I'm going to go with you another mile. And he's like, okay, weirdo. And so he lets you carry your, his pack for another mile. Along the journey, he says, why didn't you just go home when I told you your mile was done? And you say, well, I'm a follower of this guy named Jesus. And he taught us that if somebody requires you to go one mile, Instead of doing the bare minimum, instead of being motivated only by law, we should be motivated by love and we should go a second mile. And the soldier would say, you guys are dumb. No wonder you got conquered. And he'd just keep walking on. But a little bit later, you know what I think would happen? He'd say, tell me more about this Jesus guy. That sounds very strange. Why would he tell you to go the second mile. And all of a sudden there's an open door to speak about the God who would go the second mile for you. And that door would not be open if you had only gone one mile and then dropped the gear and walked away. This is true at work. Can you imagine what would happen if you started going the second mile at work? Like if you really put in full effort, you didn't do the bare minimum that was required, you gave it 100%. Whether or not your spouse recognizes or appreciates the fact that you've gone the first mile, much less the second. If that were to happen, don't you think it would open some doors in your workplace? Absolutely. Could you imagine if you started consistently going the second mile in your marriage? Or maybe if that's too hard to picture, could you imagine how much different things would be if your spouse just started going the second mile? You're like, oh my gosh, suddenly new things are happening. Doors are opening. There are miracles that are coming all the time because we're going this next step, this second mile. I'll tell you guys, something I've discovered is that miracles rarely happen in the first mile. They rarely happen when you do the bare minimum. They rarely happen When you're just looking to get it done and over with so you can get about your own day. But miracles often happen in the second mile. When we go above and beyond. When we choose to go further than what we have to in the moment. Now. This would be a great place for me to end the message. It's 1117 and I could pray and we could go home and you guys would be like, man, he was done early and that was a positive, uplifting message. Some of you guys are like, amen, let's do it. What's holding you back? Well, I'll tell you what's holding me back. I had written this entire message and I did what I've always done with this passage. And I tied it up nicely for you in which I said, guys. If you'll just go the second mile, your miracle's coming. Jesus will meet you in that second mile and he'll give you the breakthrough that you need. If your marriage is struggling, all you need to do is go the second mile and your spouse's eyes will be opened and they will see you in a new light and their heart will change and suddenly you'll have the best marriage in the city of Calgary. I wanted to say, if you'll just go the second mile at work, your boss will start to appreciate you and you'll get promoted and you'll get a raise and suddenly you've got a title. I wanted to say to you guys, if you just go the second mile serving here at the church, I could have been so selfish in this moment. I really could have used this. I could have said, if you just start serving every single week, man, God will bless you. You'll feel better than you've ever felt in your entire life. Your miracle will happen in your second mile. So go the second mile today. I could have preached it that way. There was something that really bothered me last Friday morning. I'm going over this message, reading through Jesus' words, and it occurs to me that Jesus never promised a miracle in the second mile. Read it closely. There's never a moment in which Jesus says, If you'll just go the second mile, my friends, God will give you everything you want not in there. I think Jesus hints that there are some good things that can happen if we will go the second mile. I believe that's true, but Jesus doesn't promise it. So you know what? Friday, I had to go back and rewrite the entire closing of this message because I knew it wasn't honest. It wasn't faithful to what Jesus actually says here in Matthew chapter number five. In fact, if you read, we read um, verses 38 through 42. If you start reading in verse 43, the very next verse, look at what Jesus has to say here. He says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45 is very important. He says, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil people and good people. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. There's this temptation to read Jesus' words here and call that second mile the miracle mile. And to read all these promises and guarantees and blessings and breakthroughs in what Christ says here in this passage. But you know what I'm really convinced of? I think if I preach that message to you and Jesus were sitting right here in that seat, he'd pull me aside afterwards and he would say, Dan, what you just talked about is not a miracle mile. You just talked about a manipulation mile because you took my command to go the second mile and you made it all about you. You made it so that if you just did this, then you could start getting what you wanted from God and from the people around you. It was all about your agenda. It was all about being some sort of magic formula to get what you want in the world. And you know what? That is manipulation. And that is not what Jesus is talking about in this passage at all. This is not what he wants from his followers. See, The first mile we talked about is motivated by law. It's the requirement. It's the bare minimum of what we have to do to just be good humans, much less Christians. But if we wanna be Christians, we're called to be motivated by love, to go the second mile for no other reason than because of our love for God and our love for people. But quite frankly, what most of us do is we take Matthew chapter number five, And we focus or we are motivated to go that second mile so that we will get leverage. Leverage over God, leverage over our people. I did it, I keep giving. When are you gonna wake up? When are you gonna hold up your end of the bargain? When are you gonna become the wife I need you to be? When are you gonna become the husband that our father, our kids need you to be? When are you gonna be the boss that you should be? We start thinking in terms of motivation and we use Jesus' second mile teaching and expect that somehow it's going to get us what we want in life. But did you notice the reason that Jesus gave in verse 45 for going the second mile? I'm going to put it back on the screen because I need you to see it. In verse 45, Jesus says, when you go the second mile, then you are living as the true children of your father in heaven. My friends, the second mile is not a magic formula to get what you want. Jesus says the full and final reason that you should go the second mile for people around you is because it's what God wants you to do. Maybe it will change your situation at work. Maybe it won't. Maybe it will renew your marriage. Maybe it won't. Maybe if you start going the second mile around here on Sundays, you'll discover this joy in serving and giving of yourself. Maybe you won't. There are no promises in these verses other than to simply say, when you go the second mile, you are most like God. So the reason these are words that I wish Jesus never said is because they force me to ask the question, can I go the second mile if my only motivation is obedience? If the only thing I'm going to get out of this, if it's not going to save my marriage, if it's not going to guarantee that my boss is going to notice me, if it's not going to change the world, if my only motivation for it is obedience, can I still go the second mile? That's a question I don't It's a question I don't want to answer. But what Jesus says is so critical that when we go the second mile, we are acting as the true children of our father in heaven, because this is what our father does for us. He goes the second mile every single time. And he is not motivated by law. He's not motivated by leverage. He is always and completely motivated by his love for you. Jesus went the second mile. He went the first mile when he came from heaven to earth. He went the second mile when he endured crucifixion on our behalf. And the, the only reason he did it was because he loved us. Look at what Romans 5.8 says. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Let this sink in. Jesus went the second mile for you 2,000 years before it was even possible for you to respond to him. And when he did it, there was no guarantee that you were even going to respond. And yet he still did it. This again is why these are verses I wish Jesus never said because they force me to ask the question, can I go the second mile when the only motivation for doing so is obedience to my heavenly father? No promises, no guaranteed miracles, just God at work in my life. So I'm gonna end with a question and it's the obvious question. It's one that you've probably been thinking about a little bit already. What is one area of your life that God is asking you to go the second mile in? It could be your relational life, your friendships. It could be your marriage. Might be at work. It could be in your financial life. God wants you to go the second mile. It could be in your career or your work life. I believe wholeheartedly God's spirit is speaking to every single one of us about an area in which we need to go the second mile. And so there's another question I want to ask you as you identify that personally, quietly, in your own mind, and it's not on the screen, but what would it look like for you to go the second mile in that particular area? What would it look like for you to go the second mile with your husband or with your kids or with your boss or with your finances or with your church or your relationship with God? What would it practically and actually look like to go that second mile? And here's what I can tell you. When you go the second mile this week, there could be miracles that happen and maybe there won't. Let's say your marriage is on the brink and you're thinking to yourself, boy, if I could just, if we, if I just go the second mile, then everything will turn around. By Friday, my husband is gonna see that I'm trying harder than I've ever tried and we can be renewed and reconciled and everything can get turned around. Doubtful. I mean, maybe God could show up and give you a miracle in this second mile, but it takes a long time sometimes to have a breakthrough. So the question is, Can you go the second mile in those areas if the only thing that'll happen is that you're honoring your Father in heaven? If you're gonna do that, you know what you need? You know what I need? A declaration. I need some words that I can say to myself when I'm in the grind and it doesn't seem to be paying off, and Jesus is not showing up with some massive miracle, and my spouse is not responding to any of my good deeds when people are not appreciating me, when they keep interjecting themselves into my life and forcing me to do things I don't have time or desire to do, I need words that will help me to remind myself what's actually at stake. So do you. So here's what I hope you'll do. I hope you'll write these down. Take a picture. I hope you'll have these words in your mouth in the coming days because I think they are powerful enough to see you through the second mile when the second mile doesn't seem worth going through. You would say this, I am not doing this for my benefit. I'm not doing this for their benefit. I'm doing this for God's glory and that's enough. Could we say those together? I want these words in your mouth. When, it's, when the grind is on this week and you're going the second mile and wondering if it's worth it, I want you to say to yourself, I'm not doing this for my benefit. I'm not doing this for their benefit. I'm doing this for God's glory. And that is enough.